This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Relationships are very important to Troy Riggs. He's Denver's new director of public safety. Riggs says he came to Colorado in part because of a chance to build a relationship with Mayor Michael Hancock. He's also had a long-standing relationship with Denver Police Chief Robert White, which is a matter of concern for some looking at an ongoing investigation in the police department. But Riggs says the most important relationship he wants to develop is with the city's communities. Director Riggs, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you for having me. To start, Denver's Department of Public Safety oversees the city's law enforcement agencies, fire department, and jails. However, you didn't come to Denver for that job, but rather the city's chief operating officer. That was in November. How did those first months help you prepare for your move to this current position? Well, it really did prepare me. I had some opportunities throughout the nation, but after hearing speeches from Mayor Hancock, meeting him personally, I knew I wanted to be a part of Team Hancock. And because I saw his belief in in good government and his belief in helping citizens. So there was a chief operating officer position they were putting together. I came here. I was able to really look at all the strategic plans for all the different departments, focused a lot of time on the sheriff reform efforts and seeing the changes they're making and the progress they've made over the last few months. But then I sat down and met with every individual within our staff. I met with various employees, and I was in the community a great deal for those first three months as well. And when you came in, was there no indication that or expectation, really, that you would eventually move from COO to director of public safety? No, I, I had had a conversation with Mayor Hancock, and he knew I was being recruited other places. But I really wanted to be in the city, and I wanted to be a part of his team long term. So I didn't really care where I landed, quite frankly. I just wanted to be part of his team. And the chief operating officer of public safety was really a good spot for me. There are parts of the community who look at issues like police shootings or abuse cases that have occurred in the Denver jail, and they don't seem to be on the same page with city officials when it comes to public safety. I mean, what will differentiate your approach in trying to get everyone on the same page? Well, I think if they'll look at what we've done over the last three months I've been here with the reform efforts in the Sheriff's Department and Sheriff Furman leadership that he's really been given and the new team he's put in place, they're going to see some some massive changes that's taking place now. But they're going to see the Sheriff's Department move from reform to being very proactive, especially with dependency issues, reentry issues use of force issues. We just had that conversation the other day. But for those individuals that are concerned about the sheriff's department, I think the sheriff and I and the mayor say we are, we understand that. There have been issues in the past. That's why there's been a great reform effort that's taken place. I want to hear those concerns. I want to listen to them. And if there's something that we're not doing well, it's our responsibility and leadership to improve that. And the only way we can improve it is by listening to individuals. And some of the individuals we need to listen to are those that have been incarcerated have been released. We can learn a great deal from them as well. So those voices that may not have been heard in the past, you're hoping to step up and, and really talk to them. Absolutely. And you'll see one of the big pushes that I have is we need to be in the community more as a Department of Safety. We need to listen, not only just to the people patting us on the back, but those that have criticism. And I've already told our staff, for some people that may be malicious in their criticism, we still need to listen because there's usually a shred of truth in there somewhere that will help us improve. And we we owe that to the citizens of Denver. I, I think of, of people that may not even know that your department exists and what it is. They just see what you oversee. Right. So the Department of Safety is 4,400 individuals. It's $540 million investment that this city has made and Mayor Hancock has made in public safety. And that deals with everything from police services to reentry throughout the jail, people leaving, and a lot of uh, health issues that the fire department has to deal with on a daily basis. Your background is in police work. 
you were on the force in Louisville, Kentucky. You were police chief in Indianapolis, Indiana. Your predecessor here, Stephanie O'Malley, was a lawyer. Help us understand where the lines are drawn when it comes to your earlier jobs and this new one. Well, I've also been an assistant city manager over public health and safety, and I've been a director of public safety over something very similar in Indianapolis mm-hmm. to here in Denver. So I have that experience as well. And a long time ago, I worked in the county judge executive office helping oversee all operations. Uh, so I have a lot of operational experience. But Stephanie O'Malley had a great deal of legal experience, and there has to be a balance. So I tell people all the time, there's not one person that's smart enough to do this job. It's very difficult, very complex. You're dealing with people every day. You're dealing with some of the tremendous issues that we're grappling with as a nation. And I have to rely on a team around me. So we have a very good team. And I'll have to say, I've never seen an executive office that has so much talent. And Stephanie O'Malley needs to be uh, given a great deal of credit for assembling such a very good team. There are a lot of things that have, as you say, already been in place before you came on board here. What initiatives are you considering to make Denver a safer place yourself? Well, one of the things we need to look at is we really have to look at data. We have to see what the data is telling us. We have to really follow the uh, mandate of the mayor to focus on those individuals who have been left behind by Denver's recent prosperity. So you will see us using data. You'll see us not only using data, but data's pretty much useless if we don't listen to people and what their needs are and putting those together. So we're trying to use data to really focus on a few things. Number one, we need to look at poverty, what leads to poverty. We need to also look at those individuals that are what some people refer to as strangers in our community. Maybe it's immigrants. Maybe it's individuals that are coming out of prison that need assistance. And then we really need to look at some health issues, mental health issues, dependency issues. Those are big issues that are causing a lot of our issues. And people once in a while will say, why is a director of safety talking about these issues? If you look in our highest crime areas, our safe, unsafest areas throughout this nation, you're going to find people living in poverty. You're going to find people with mental health issues. You're going to find people that feel like that they have been left out of the American dream. That's our responsibility to help them. And if we do, then that means public safety will uh, enhance over time. And that's why I'm so excited here with the mayor running for reelection. It appears we certainly have a, a few years, a long-term uh, approach to deal with some of these issues. When you mention data, what sort of numbers are indicative of poverty and, and possible solutions? There? Well, one of the things we have to look at in major cities, and I, before I came here, I was working for a think tank, and we looked at 50 major cities across America. And kind of the things we looked at was, what's the growth in poverty as percentage of your growth in population? Uh, how many people are living with food insecurity? How many individuals are dealing with dependency issues? How many individuals are incarcerated have some type of mental health issues? These are numbers we have to pull together to make sure that we're using that $540 million investment as efficiently and effectively as possible throughout the city of Denver. So are those numbers out there? You just don't have them yet? or, or, or you? We have them? some numbers. Yeah. So we have already pulled some of the numbers. I had a, a staff meeting after I got sworn in. A week ago on Monday, we had an immediate staff meeting and a data meeting, I believe, the following day. And we're already putting those numbers together, but we're also listening to the community as well. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with Troy Riggs. He's the new head of Denver's Department of Public Safety about his new role and initiatives he's hoping to implement. Um, I want to talk about a couple of issues in the news that you're inheriting in this new position. One is, of course, the ongoing reform of the Denver Sheriff Department. In an interview with the Denver Post earlier this week, you said that the department, quote, has to get past reform. What did you mean by that? I know we spoke about it earlier, but let's go deeper. Well, they have to finalize their reform efforts, 
and then they have to move past reform. Right now, a lot of the effort and a lot of the ingenuity and the focus has been on how do we reform our sheriff's department. Where I would like to see, and I know Sheriff Furman would like to see the department, is let's accomplish those reforms. Let's get on a sustainable path. But then let's also look at proactively. What do we need to be focusing on? Dependency issues we've talked about, mental health issues. There's a great deal that the department already does that can do more. So when you get past reforms, then you can move to being a national leader. And that's the ultimate goal for the sheriff's department. Is this frustrating for you coming into this? It's a little frustrating. But remember, I've, I've, I have a history of inheriting different departments that have had great deals of frustration, some being investigated by the DOJ when I arrived and trying to work through that. The issues that we have here are not insurmountable. There's good leadership in place. It's time-consuming, but one of the things that I'm very optimistic about is that this year they will be able to finish those reform efforts and move to the future, and not only move to the future, set an agenda that they can share with the public for the future. The other area is the investigation into DPD Chief Robert White and his Deputy Chief Matt Murray over the handling of internal affairs. Uh, You worked under Chief White in Kentucky and have called him one of your mentors. Why wouldn't that present a conflict of interest in the current investigation? Well, and let me just say this. I did work for Chief White. He is one of my mentors. I won't shy away from that. One of the individuals I called when I had the opportunity to come here was Chief White and asked him about the mayor and asked him about the city. He had nothing but positive to say about everything in Denver. Uh, But the mayor's made it very clear. Chief White is a political appointee of the mayor of Denver. The mayor will make the decision on Chief White in an investigation. I will make the decision on Matt Murray because Chief Murray is part of the system through the ranks that he's moved. So I will have to look at that. But when the report is finished, it will go directly to the mayor. He will make the decision. Uh, I I intend to make the decision on Chief Murray probably sometime after because there'll be some additional investigative things that'll have to take place. But but isn't the ongoing investigation overall your responsibility? You have to have your hand in some of these things. There is, but there's been an independent investigation that's been pulled in to do that that Stephanie O'Malley set up. Uh, And then there's a deputy director that oversees a lot of that and puts it together at the end. But at the end of the day, it's the mayor's ultimate decision, not mine. And he's made that very clear. Have you consulted with the city's independent monitor, uh, Nick Mitchell, about some of these issues that you're inheriting? I mean, we will. We have a uh, scheduled meeting, I believe, that we're putting together to sit down, have that conversation. But once again, we have a deputy director that's an attorney that works with him constantly on all discipline process. But I look forward to that. I've met him briefly, but I look forward to have a sit down conversation. As we mentioned earlier, you you said part of this attraction coming to Denver was Mayor Michael Hancock. What was it about him in particular that made you want to be here? Well, when I had the opportunity to come to Denver on some business and I had a chance to sit down with Mayor Hancock, I think we had about 30 minutes planned and we ended up spending an hour talking about data, talking about the future of public safety. And it really whetted my appetite to get back into public safety. I'd been thinking about it. I was getting phone calls from city management positions, chief of police positions. But listening to the mayor and listening to his vision really inspired me. So when I returned back to Indianapolis, I started looking at old state of the city addresses. And I found one where he was at the Denver International Airport. And he was talking about all these wonderful things going on in Denver, as any elected official would. But what stood out to me is during the speech, he stopped in the middle of the speech and talked about that he could not forget, and we could not forget as a city, those individuals had been left behind by Denver's recent prosperity. And with my conversation, hearing his speech and seeing his passion, hearing his life story, 
I knew that that was an individual that I could work for. And I knew that with his leadership, we could accomplish some great things and lead the nation, quite frankly, in public safety. Now, now obviously, not everyone is as big, as a big a fan as, as, as you about fears of gentrification, affordable housing, the poor getting pushed out by development. So, so what's different about him in your eyes? Well, I think he realizes that. Remember, he's the mayor of a city that's growing dramatically. He cannot control all of that. People sometimes think the mayor can control that. That's that's the economy. That's capitalism. But what he's trying to do is make sure that no one's left behind and giving them the same opportunities. And what I like to say is I believe the mayor understands that this city, as great as it is, cannot fulfill its full potential until all of its citizens have the equal opportunity to, to succeed. And that's what we're going to try to do in public safety and help the mayor with that because it is a public safety issue. And briefly, um, I found this very interesting, but another area that, that I think is, is interesting is that you don't immediately associate public safety with faith. Uh, but I understand you don't look at the two as a dichotomy. Uh, how so? Well, I think that if you look at any major movement across the United States, the civil rights movement, all the way back to the revolution, faith has been a very strong uh, foundation of all of that. And I think that sometimes that we're afraid to reach out to faith-based organizations, but where would we be in this country if we didn't have faith-based organizations helping immigrants, those with dependency issues? We need them to be successful. There's only so much the government can accomplish, but for us to have long-term success, we can be the leader in some of the data. We can be the leader in developing some initiatives. We can be the leader in, in bringing the conversation to fruition. But for it to be long-term successful, it's got to be a community effort. And the faith-based community is such an important part of that, along with the nonprofit world as well. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Troy Riggs is the city of Denver's new director of public safety. He replaces Stephanie O'Malley, who moves on to another position in Mayor Michael Hancock's administration. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Stay with us. Public art is tough to take care of. It's exposed to things like harsh weather conditions, vandalism, and interactions with people. And collections around Colorado, from Denver to Steamboat Springs, are aging. They're also growing. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis spoke with public art caretakers about how hard it is to keep up. Outside of Denver's East High School on Colfax are two tall concrete pillars. At the top of each is a statue. Agriculture shows women. One holds a basket of grain. The other is of men, titled Mining. If the themes seem old-fashioned, they are. The piece is now 100 years old. It is uh, one of the bright spots of Colfax. That's artist John McEnroe. He's been working with Denver for the last year to help the city manage maintenance of its public art collection. He says restoration of this piece by Italian immigrant Leo Lentelli has been a high priority for years. Material inside the concrete expands when it gets wet and when it freezes and pushes the material off. He says things are constantly happening to public art. Something gets tagged with graffiti or hit by a car. A light bulb burns out. He says these emergencies make him feel a bit like the public art ambulance. And the bigger jobs, like the one outside of East High School, are like managing a small construction project. It seems like when you look at a small issue on an artwork that we can just call somebody up and say, hey, can you come fix that? But oftentimes those repairs require three or four different tradespeople to do the work. It costs the city nearly $30,000 to restore agriculture. The other statue is expected to cost double that. 
These are just two of the 27 artworks on last year's list that need nearly $450,000 in repairs. That's money that not everybody collecting public art has. John McEnroe knows this firsthand from a recent visit to one of his pieces in RTD's public art collection. It's at the Dry Creek and I-25 light rail station. It is hard to have my name next to this. It is a mess. The piece is called Fool's Gold. The large, turnable hourglasses were installed in 2006. Each represents a watershed in Colorado. McEnroe says he's been avoiding the station for years because he's heard bad things about the state of his work. Um, boy, this one really needs some tightening. Um, looks a little bit loose. The acrylic is cracked and the paint is sun-bleached. The glue seal has come loose, allowing the hourglasses to rotate freely in their sleeves. And the gold beads have leaked, making it hard to see inside. I see something that's broken before I see anything that communicates to me about water or gold. RTD isn't making any promises about a fix for McEnroe's art. Christina Zezueta is RTD's community engagement manager. She says for the last few years, $30,000 has been been budgeted to take care of RTD's collection. But she says that amount isn't always guaranteed. If something needed significant work, that's something that we would have to look at our resources and see how much we could invest and when we could invest it. And sometimes collectors find that art maintenance can get out of hand and they want to take something down, usually a last resort. Denver International Airport recently requested the removal of a piece installed more than 20 years ago in Concourse C. Interior Garden by Michael Singer is made to look like ruins, with plants growing amongst the ancient-looking infrastructure. Stacy Stegman of DIA says birds and mice use it, and they struggle to keep the plants alive. The airport has spent more than $800,000 in maintenance on the piece. What point does maintenance become too burdensome that it doesn't make sense to hold on to a piece anymore? DIA also has its eye on using the space for passengers, since the airport has more than doubled its traffic since the artwork went in. The Denver Commission on Cultural Affairs said the art couldn't be removed, that the airport has a responsibility to make it work. But eventually, the head of arts and venues gave DIA permission to remove it, if the airport commissioned another piece by the same artist. Of course, art managers don't want their collections to fall apart, so they have to consider what it'll take to avoid broken pieces and hefty maintenance costs. Stacy Stegman says they have to weigh the artist's goals to make impressive pieces and the airport's responsibility to keep it working in an environment where millions of people pass through each year. It makes sense from an artist's perspective. It makes sense to be able to do that, to really maximize the beauty of the art, but it does create challenges in our environment that no one would have predicted. Michael Chavez is Denver's public art program manager. He says the city considers maintenance costs when it selects art. How to maintain pieces long term and making sure we're not getting ourselves in a bad position there. Because on top of taking care of the old stuff, the city has to keep creating new pieces too. 1% of any capital improvement project by the city of over a million dollars must go to creating public art. More than two dozen pieces are in the works, pieces the city will need to take care of forever. Artist John McEnroe acknowledges it's a tough balance. The work shouldn't be dumbed down because it's in the public realm. It should be should be just as challenging as anything, but it just needs to be a little tougher. One Colorado town dealt with public art maintenance issues by putting all new art on hold for a year. Steamboat Springs used to take on public art donations without a plan or budget to maintain it. Winnie Delacuadri is the assistant to the city manager. She says even simple bronze statues need work 
especially if you make the mistake of putting them near sulfur hot springs. And now we know that that's not a good idea. But at the time, there were a lot of representations that art did not need maintenance. Now, if someone wants to donate a piece of public art, they'll have to supply a long-term maintenance budget, too, by donating to an endowment fund. She says the city's focus has switched. The focus of the public art board was very much on acquiring new. Now, the focus is on really facilitating and supporting the community's interest in public art and also making sure that we can preserve it forever. And forever? is a long time. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. At CPR.org, you can see pictures of the artworks mentioned in this story, like Fool's Gold and Agriculture. Is there a piece of public art that's broken in your neighborhood or along your commute, maybe nearby where you work? Share a photo or video with us on either Twitter or Instagram. You can take us at NewsCPR. A Denver ballerina is preparing to take her final curtain call with the dance company she's been with for 22 years. Colorado Ballet principal dancer Sharon Wehner retires from the company this spring. They'll celebrate her career this month with performances of the ballet Romeo and Juliet. Juliet is her favorite role. My love of the role really dates back to the first time I saw the ballet when I was about nine years old. And the experience was sort of seared in my memory because it was, I think, one of the first times I saw how ballet can be so powerfully moving. And even at that young age, I could feel the audience affected by the ballet. Romeo and Juliet marks Wainer's final performances with the Colorado Ballet at the Ellie Calkins Opera House. The company has one more show this season at a different theater. She remembers dancing on this stage when the Opera House first opened in 2005 and has even had the same dressing room since day one. But for now, she's keeping her emotions in check. The emotions, they will come as they come. And right now, if they start to come in, I just sort of try and set them aside because I have work that's really meaningful to me to do. And if I feel like I can't do my work well because I'm distracted by all those other emotions floating around, then I... I will be very unsatisfied with that final curtain call if I haven't put 110% into my performance. Her departure from Colorado Ballet doesn't mean she's done dancing, though. I love telling stories as a dancer, and I would love to tell maybe different kinds of stories, so maybe not the princess story so much anymore. But I'd like to see how I can expand myself as a dancer into different genres. Colorado Ballet principal dancer Sharon Weiner retires from the company this spring. She performs some of her final shows this weekend, dancing her favorite ballet, Romeo and Juliet. It runs through Sunday at the Ellie Calkins Opera House in Denver. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. One story has haunted a reporter in Greeley for the past 40 years, the murder of a 7-Eleven clerk who the reporter Mike Peters knew of before she died. It happened back in 1977. Peters and law enforcement officers stuck with the case over all these years, and the officers finally found the killer. Peters tells the whole story in a new book called The Cornfield. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. 
The victim's name was Mary Pierce, and the book title comes from the fact that her body was found in a cornfield in Greeley. Can he take... Yes, she disappeared um, on August 9th, 1977, yeah. and they found her in a search two days later in the cornfield. You describe it's, it's inside the Greeley city limits now, and since the city has expanded, so, but the cornfield is still there. Yeah, yeah. Take us back to that that cornfield. You, you describe it in the book so vividly, and, and and of course Greeley, there are a lot of cornfields around, but this one felt different to you when you came up on it, right? Well, this one has, for forty years now has haunted me. Every time we go by it, I think about Mary and her, she being found there. And every almost every cop that worked the case has told me that he can't go by there without thinking of her either, that uh, that cornfield just took a different meaning in everything. Where were you the night that uh, she disappeared uh, from the 7-Eleven? I was in a police car on a major drug bus that went clear across the county, and uh, I was on my way to Alt, which is a small town north of Greeley, because that was supposed to be the toughest guy to take. And, of course, since I was a reporter, I wanted to be in on the action. So I was riding with two police officers up there when uh, three beeps came over the radio. And those beeps are to signify uh, crime in progress. And what it was, it said we have a 7-Eleven clerk missing from the downtown store. Uh, the two cops that I was with was on the drug bus, so they couldn't respond. But uh, several other police officers did and found the store empty. Now, did you know at the time that, that Mary would have been there at that time? No, no. I, the only reason I knew her is because I'd seen her in the store before. She'd waited on me, but then I was a customer. She was a recent graduate of UNC up here, had uh, did, done a delayed enlistment in the Air Force and was just waiting to go in when a friend called her, another clerk, and said, can you work for me tonight? And that was her last night. She went in and substituted for the other clerk. So why has this particular murder nagged you all this time? Well, because I was with it from the beginning. I did the initial stories on it. I was there when I heard the three beeps. I was there when the police found the body. Um, When they opened the investigation several times within the next 30 years. Then I I covered the case when they finally made an arrest. uh, uh, And covered the trial when, when the man was convicted. Uh, part of it also is the fact that it was, it was made very interesting, not only because it took so long to solve it, but because they brought a psychic in on the case. Right. Talk about that. I mean, it seemed that the Boy Scouts were also involved in this in terms of the hunt. I mean, uh, yeah, it that was, was that was everybody admits that was a wrong thing to do. They were looking for they'd found her 7-Eleven clerk west of Greeley near this cornfield. So they set out a large search on the Saturday morning to search for her and. A, volunteer, a Boy Scout troop volunteered to come in and help, which is not a good thing to have boys searching for the body. <laughs> they didn't find the thing. They found her eyeglasses alongside the road, but uh, they didn't find the body. But concerning the psychic, um, a year almost to the date from the when the murder happened, I got an anonymous call. It said the, the DA is bringing a psychic in on the Mary Pierce case. So I called the DA, and he said, come over and talk to me. So I went over to the DA's office, and there was the DA and the sheriff and the police chief. And they said, we are calling him a psychic just because he's been successful before. It's only going to cost us about $100. He's worked in two other towns here, cases. And if if there's a story before he comes in, he won't come. He doesn't want publicity. So if you do a story now, 
he won't be here and we can say he's not coming. Or you can wait and do a story when he's finished. So, of course, I waited. Um, he he didn't solve this case. He brought up some new things on it. He did solve a case in Lakewood, and he found a murder weapon on a case in, in Fort Collins. Um, one thing that connected to me, I wanted to see just what he looked like. And so I knew they were in the cornfield one day, so I just drove past. Uh-huh. While he was out in the cornfield, he stopped talking to the officers about the case and said, a reporter knows I'm here, but he won't do a story yet. And the cops looked up and saw me drive by right at that time. <laughs> it seems very interesting that all of that yeah. was happening. Yeah. I, I want to talk about the police line, the police tip line that that opened up uh, with a very generic description. They were looking for this heavyset Hispanic yeah. man. And it turned out decades later, they had the tip all along, but they ignored it in this deluge of calls that came in from people living in that area. It was, they compared it to the lottery. And if everybody turned in, everybody decided that they turned in every heavyset Hispanic man with a mustache, if you hit it right, you won the, the, the reward. So everybody was, was calling in and saying, I saw him in downtown Denver. I saw him in Lakewood. Uh, I saw him in North Greeley. And so the police were just deluged with these calls and finally had to call it off and not, not use that description anymore. Fortunately, no. the, the description did fit the suspect. The suspect came into town, was in Greeley only about 30 days, then left town two days after a murder. And so they had no idea his connection. The only way they found him is DNA evidence 30 years later. Right. They eventually identified the killer as a man who by that time was living with his wife in Florida using DNA evidence. Yes. What was that That like for you and for the investigators to have that closure? That was amazing. And the, the, the investigator at the sheriff's office who found the DNA, and they, they thought they'd lost the DNA, and that the CBI had used up the DNA in their investigation 30 years before. But she found some more and put it on the web, the national uh, DNA website, and that was 30 years after the case. And then three years later, they got a hit because this guy had just been released from the state pen in Texas on drug charges. And in Texas... When you're released from the penitentiary, you have to register on the national website for DNA. And that's how they made the connection. Was that a fluke that you just found the DNA just as a fluke, just looking around? Or? She was going through the uh, evidence. The, the evidence locker for this thing was tremendous. You can imagine after so many years how much evidence they'd gathered. And it was just, it was almost overwhelming. And she found um, blood and semen samples on a little bitty card that was officially taken for this and so it was it was good evidence in the case right and she was able to get it into cbi and get it did see 40 years ago when the case happened there was no such thing as dna connections so this happened as dna progressed for the longest time the prime suspects in the case were actually two brothers who had just moved from utah where they'd attacked other women and been sent to jail but Law enforcement couldn't prove that they were involved. Do you still think they, they were involved? Any evidence in their car that she'd been there? Um, they admitted to being in the Seven Eleven store the night she was taken. They had been being in there after midnight. She was taken about three o'clock in the morning. But that's all they admitted. It came close to. They said some things that shed 
evidence that they were involved, and they could have been. They could have been three people involved in this, but police have never been able to connect the two two men. What happened in this case is that they brought one of them back to stand trial, and they had this. They had already sent in years before the blood samples and semen samples to CBI. And then they got the, the sample jars back and put them in the evidence locker in case something else developed. Well, DNA developed, so they sent the samples back down to to CBI. They opened the jars and found out that years before, CBI had taste, tested the blood and washed out both jars, resealed them, and sent them back. So there was no DNA evidence in there. This seems to be and, a, a, a passion for you. How How long... Did you know you wanted to write this book about this incident with this murder victim? Probably 20 years. I, I tried other attempts and didn't like the way it had gone together. Uh, finally, I retired. For, I was with the Tribune for 40 years covering courts and cops and things like that. And finally retired and was able to have the time to sit down and, and finish the book. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Mike Peters is a columnist for the Greeley Tribune. His book, The Cornfield, is about a murder that happened in 1977 in the early years of his career with the Tribune and has stuck with him ever since. It takes a lot of power to fuel Denver's growing marijuana industry. CPR News has new data from the city that shows the energy-hungry plants soak up nearly 4% of the city's total electricity use. That's a big obstacle for Denver city officials who want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. CPR energy reporter Grace Hood talked with Joanne Allen about newly released numbers. Just how much power does it take to grow marijuana plants? It's really significant. The key point is that it's been growing year over year since 2012. Uh, Back then, it was about 1.5 percent of total use in the city. And in 2016, the most recent year of data that's available, it's nearly 4 percent of the city's total electricity use. The marijuana industry, that's, you know, billions of revenue, and um, it's grown significantly during that time period. And certainly that upward trajectory of electricity use shows few signs of stopping. And cities like Denver are really on the forefront of tracking this. The city wants to reduce greenhouse gas emissions 80 percent by 2050. So what are they doing with this particular data? There's good news and bad news here. Recreational pot industry, it's growing. It brings a lot of tax revenue to the state. It's a challenge because it sucks up so much energy. At the same time, the city is paying really close attention to greenhouse gas emissions. So I think just gathering this data and putting it out there is a key step. The city has a sustainability task force for how to grow cannabis, and it's going to continue a lot of that work. Well, Denver's sustainability officials, what are they saying about these numbers? I spoke with Emily Backus. She's a sustainability advisor with the Denver Department of Public Health and Environment. And she says that the industry is actually getting more efficient in how it grows marijuana. But the demand for recreational pot is just prompting marijuana grow facilities. That's where these plants are cultivated to produce more. And when we did the math on those numbers, we found that they are using less 
electricity per pound of marijuana grown than they were before. Now, there are other ways that marijuana grows are becoming more efficient. For example, they can use LED lights. They can also fine-tune their HVAC or ventilation system. How pervasive are these new technologies in the industry? LEDs have been widely adopted for things like streetlights and homes and businesses. What's kind of interesting is that they've been slow to catch on in the marijuana industry. I was surprised by that. I think some growers had bad experiences with these lights early on, but the technology has just really improved significantly. Well, what else are you hearing from growers? I spoke with Tim Cullen. He owns the Colorado Harvest Company in Denver. Um, he spends $13,000 a month to keep the lights on at one of his grow facilities. He experimented with LEDs this past summer to grow plants during a specific stage of development. So he's not using it for all plants all the time. And he's kind of slowly swapping out his less efficient lights. And it does offset our electrical use, but it's, it's little bits at a time and it's over over years and years and years. So I think kind of the one key thing to point out here is you're not hearing a sense of urgency in his voice. That could be a theme there. I don't think there's a huge push right now to reduce electricity use. And to me, that says that probably the upward trajectory we're talking about is going to continue to go up for a few more years before it goes down. Well, Grace, in your reporting, did you find anything else that may cause a a tipping point. Even though the city has set a limit on licensed grow operations, each one of those operations can and will continue to expand capacity within legal limits of their license. And in the last year, we've actually seen a 23 percent increase in production grown at these facilities. I think, you know, for me, if I step back and take this 50,000 foot view of where the industry is at right now, you've got this agricultural process, the growing of plants that's happening almost exclusively indoors because of, you know, maybe the past of of the industry and how when it was illegal, that's how you grew plants. Now, you might see in another five or 10 years a move towards where you traditionally grow agriculture, like greenhouses, or you grow it outdoors. We're starting to see that in Pueblo. And I think that's where in the coming years we'll kind of go from eating around the edges with this, and you have things like LED lights, uh, and people fine-tuning their HVAC system, to really where you see bigger impacts with reduction of electricity use. And that's where you can maximize that with greenhouses and just using the sunlight outdoors. So that's where the big cost savings are. That was CPR energy reporter Grace Hood talking with Joanne Allen about the growing power use of the marijuana industry in Denver. Mariachi music will fill the Denver Center's Stage Theater once more this weekend. American Mariachi is about a young woman breaking with yet honoring the traditions of this musical genre. And she does it all for her mother. The show had its world premiere in Denver after being workshopped at the 2016 Colorado New Play Summit. It closes this weekend at the Denver Center. Jose Cruz Gonzalez is the playwright. He lives in L.A., and I spoke with him last month from NPR West. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Oh, thank you. Excited to be here. You you teach in the Department of Theater and Dance at California State University in L.A. Is it true that the inspiration for this play came after you sat in on a mariachi class at the university? Yes. In fact, it was... um... I reached out to the teacher there uh, just and asked her if I could take, um, you know, um, the course. And she said, absolutely, come on in. And that started this wonderful journey of 
eventually writing this play. Did, did you know anything about mariachi beforehand? You know, no, not at all. I, you know, my parents listened to it as a, when I was a kid, but no, nothing until I stepped into that world. So, so was that what made you take this class in the first place, was, or was it just curiosity of, about the music? No, I think it was curiosity of the music, wanting to try something different. Um, you know, for me, I, I have no musical talent in my body. And, <laughs> uh, you know, taking that, that, that class, and that's been now seven years, I've, you know, got a little better over time. But it was a, an amazing journey for me to learn about the music and, of course, you know, studying with different teachers and from listening to the teachers tell their stories, there was this wonderful, wonderful story of women playing this music that's been traditionally played by men. And why was it traditionally so hard for women to break into mariachi? Well, you know, it's a, it's a form that's a musical form that's hundreds of years old. And, um, you know, it was, um, you know, it comes out of the conquests of the new world, this merging of uh, music and cultures, this blending. And, and um, so, you know, it was some, a tradition that has been passed on from, uh, you know, fathers to sons. And it wasn't really until, I'd say, the 1940s that women started to play just for a little bit in, in, in Mexico as a sort of a novelty. But it wasn't really until the 1970s here in the United States that women began to start their own groups. And your play is set in the American Southwest in the 1970s. Uh, Lucha yes. is the main character, and, and she's become obsessed with learning a very specific mariachi song. C- could you sing or hum a, a bit of that for us? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll do it in Spanish and sure. do it in English for you. Sure. Mirosa como ninguna, un bello perfume en flor, de plantar en mi jardín, que todos vean mi amor. You are rose like no other, a beautiful perfume and bloom. I'll plant you in my garden for all to see your mine. Why is Lucha so committed to learning that song? Well, this is a song that her father, who was a working mariachi, wrote and sang and recorded for her mother. And so this is um, this was recorded in one of those um, voiceographs, you know, those old little booths where you could record a 45 record. Oh, right. Uh, and send it to family and, so, and friends and things like that. Yeah. yeah. And so this was, of course, a song to, because he was in love with, with her mother and um, wrote it for her. And of course, you know, this was cherished by the mother. Uh, she, Lucha listened to it growing up as her mother was always cleaning on the weekends, you know, in the house, that sort of thing. And so it was, you know, embedded in her early on. And this is something that her mother tr- cherished. What happens to, and, the, to that record? What, what yeah. happens to it? Well, it gets broken. And, you know, her mother is also suffering from early dementia. Mm. And when she plays that record, she comes alive. And once it's broken, it's her quest of, I've got to figure out how to learn that song. I've, I've got to learn to play this music. And, of course, her cousin Boli says, are you out of your mind? Your father wouldn't allow it. And thus begins this journey of this young woman trying to find other women um, to learn to play this song, to, to find this group and, and play and, and play this song. 
I want to hear. And of course, they're going to run over all sorts of stuff, <laughs> challenges, of course. Because you, you mentioned it's such a difficult thing, and almost well, is taboo too strong a word back in the back in the seventies? Absolutely. You know, um, you know, in in this time again with working mariachis, you know, they they would go to bars and where the immigrant men are to listen, you know, to those songs from from a, of home, and and uh, women didn't show up there. At least, you know, not uh, you know women that were you know respectable. I want to hear some music, more music from the show now. This is Cancion Mixteca, which is sung by Lucha's father. Uh, would it be accurate to describe the music as one of the main characters? Yes, that's a great, great question. You know, you, you've got nine performers on stage, and then you've got five musicians. And the mariachis are there throughout the play, and they are that tenth character, um, bringing the music to life, underscoring moments, um, bringing memory. You know, this music is something that, you know, is introduced at, uh, at baptisms, births, um, to the quinceañeras, to marriages, to death. So it's really a soundtrack of uh, people's lives. And, and people who will be going to this performance, they'll see the mariachi players on stage and in the audience. It provides context for them as well. That's right. I mean, they're really a, 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 an important narrative thread because when we start to play, we start with men, but then the journey changes and you see how that progression goes and in terms of how women become just as important and part of that mu- musical uh, tradition. This play is, is about a mother-daughter relationship and, and really female relationships as a, as a whole. What are the challenges of writing from a female perspective when, when you're not a woman? Good question. Well, listen, you know, this is a a piece that I wanted to write about that honored, you know, these women, these pioneers. Uh, I know uh, some of these women personally. Um, one of them came from my hometown who would, you know, transform this music uh, by training generations of both men and women. Um, I wanted to honor my mother, my grandmother, my wife, you know, uh, my students. Uh, and it was great to have um, my musical director, Cynthia Rafer Flores, who herself is a, one of these mariachi pioneers that comes from the 70s, also played with this, with this uh, other mariachi that came from my hometown. And so, you know, Cindy always would tell me straight. <laughs> if you, know, you got it right or not. not. Yeah. yeah, right. The title of the play was originally just the initials AM. What did that stand for? Well, it originally standed, stood for American Mariachi, and uh, when I was telling Denver, you know, well, here, I'm thinking of the title as AM, and they said, well, what does it stand for? And they said, I said, American Mariachi. It's also the name of the woman, uh, Amalia Morales, which is the father who, who you know, married uh, Amalia, uh, and it's written on that little record, AM, and of course, AM Radio, where you listen to this music. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Jose Cruz Gonzalez speaking to me last month from NPR West. 
His play American Mariachi wraps up at the Denver Center this weekend. And that's our show. Thanks to Michael Hughes, Anthony Cotton, and Rachel Estabrook. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day.